0: The other really exciting piece is that 60% of these new or resumed um, sort of lapsed participants, they intend to continue um, with these with these activities moving forward.
1: You have tuned in to PodSAM, the podcast channel of SAM Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. A year has passed since the world shut down and we are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. What lies ahead? On this episode, we explore the predominant trends that are influencing conversations about the future, including consumer changes and outdoor participation trends. This conversation is supported by Doppelmayr. We'll start the discussion here with SAM publisher, Olivia Rowan.
2: All right. So we're gonna get started here. Um, Thank you all for joining us today for our Monday Huddle. I'm Olivia Rowan, the publisher of SAM Magazine and joining me as co-host is Claire Humber from SE Group. Um, I'd also like to thank our Huddle sponsor today, Doppelmayr. We appreciate their support of this platform. Um, It truly helps us continue to keep you connected and informed. So thank you, Doppelmayr. Um, I'm excited about today's Huddle. We have a fantastic panel of experts who will share their insights and, um, and much anticipated data. Um, we have Stephanie Maez, who's the Managing Director of the Outdoor Foundation. Uh, we have MJ Legault, Principal of Origin. We have Regina Connell, founder of The Collective Work. We have Steve Wright, who's President and General Manager at Jay Peak uh, Resort in Vermont. And David Norton, who is the CEO of Taoski Valley in New Mexico. Um, I'm gonna turn it over to Claire. Claire, you're gonna kick us off?
3: Yeah, thanks, Olivia. In one of the early huddles last year, which was called opening, we took a break from crisis management and started to consider what would be next. And at that time, we focused this, the discussion uh, on the emerging realities of the moment and opportunities for adapting to the new very strange normal. We talked about out is the new inn and the pent-up demand for outdoor recreation. Uh, we talked about inside out and the necessity of taking everything outside with guest services. And we also talked about that critical importance of reaching out and checking in to maintain connections with our customers. Here we are a year later, um, winding down the winter season and reflecting on its successes, and and there were a lot of them, Um, and lessons learned also a lot of them. It seems like a perfect time to consider what's next again. In the buckle up huddle last year, um, focused on planning for the coming season, we noticed that in the spirit of never let a good crisis go to waste, there was an opportunity to reevaluate how we did things in the past, fix things that didn't work very well, make changes that could improve our guests' experiences and factor in flexibility and resiliency to protect against future disruptions. And we're still faced with that opportunity framed within the additional context of our own and literally a world of lessons learned.
1: Want to catch up on these episodes? Head into the PodSAM archives and check out episodes 27, 44, and 45. Um, Given
3: the worldwide global nature of the pandemic experience, there's a, just a tremendous amount of discussion happening right now related to the emerging trends that either have arisen from or been accelerated by the pandemic. So today we're gonna to look at those trends and talk about them in the context of how they might inform your decision-making as you consider uh, both near and long-term plans for your operations. So let's dive on in, first trend the silver lining of 2020, outside.
2: Um, so to take us through that, uh, we're excited to have Stephanie Maez, um, who is gonna take us through their uh, outdoor participation um, data that they have been working on called the New Outdoor Participant um, COVID and Beyond. So Stephanie, can you take us through some of the key findings?
0: Absolutely, thanks, Olivia. So. You know, we hear the statement, the outdoors is having a moment, right? We hear this in legislative meetings on the governmental affairs side. We hear it in funder and grantee meetings on the foundation and philanthropic side. We hear it when we're talking about brand development and marketing on the business side. And it's true. We know anecdotally that the outdoors is having a moment. What's more exciting, though, is how are we capitalizing and building on this moment to really contribute to the movement, right? Right to a movement that is about ensuring equitable access to the outdoors for all. And we're really, really excited about that and using this data as a tool, both for your work and for the purpose of building momentum around this movement. So again, that is the focal point of this research. Um, Really it's digging into four specific questions. So who are new outdoor participants as a result of COVID? And I think it's important to note that Um, In this research, we are defining new participant as a new outdoor participant who for the first time is engaging in an outdoor activity now during the pandemic or is returning from not having engaged in an outdoor activity in the last year or longer. So, um, and in addition, as part of our 600 person panel, we also surveyed existing participants to have that comparative analysis piece. So really understanding who demographically psychologically and behaviorally these new participants are and then what were the barriers previous to the pandemic that prevented folks from going outside and really what is the motive for them and why did they begin engaging in outdoor activities during the pandemic and then better understanding once once the covid restrictions lift what is their behavior likely going to be And leading into that, what can we do to incentivize and really be proactive in increasing the retention of new outdoor participants? So that being said, I think it'd probably be helpful for me to briefly give an overview of the methodology. But before jumping into um, the data itself, I wanted to mention, I I shared with you that this is uh, based on a sample of of 600 panel participants that were surveyed online through a 10 minute survey. I talked a little bit about how we define the new participant and again, it's important to note that our sample is weighted, it was weighted and representative of um, US adults ages 18 and over. So that being said, let's dig into how people were spending their free time during the pandemic, how they are and what are some of the key highlights that, that we gleaned and key learnings from this data? So what we know is that new participants are typically spending their free time outside in doing activities that are available close to home. And really those low barrier activities that they can actually do alone and or with somebody in their household. So these include walking and running. I will note though, because walking has become so popular, We weighted the sample, or not weighted, that's the wrong terminology, but we limited the number of panel participants to 50 in each subcategory to just be very clear that that data wasn't over, we weren't oversampling with folks that were just walking. So vacations were also an entry point. The other really exciting piece is that 60% of these new or resumed um, sort of lapsed participants, they intend to continue um, with these with these activities moving forward. The other really interesting um, piece of data and opportunity that we um, found from the research is that, you know, while historically screen time has been a barrier we've seen in previous participation reports that particularly with youth that screen time has really served as as a preventative from folks going outside. But now because we're living in such a virtual world and have been for the last year, people really are suffering from some significant screen time fatigue. And through that fatigue, we can really leverage that as um, an opportunity to use the outdoors to help reduce that screen time and to um, give people outside and sort of neutralize some of the negative effects of just being on our computers and screens all of the time. The other really interesting data point is better understanding why, you know, um, I think we can all agree that the pandemic has done a number on all of us mentally and emotionally. And one thing that really surfaced throughout the research is that people are feeling really afraid, they're feeling lonely and have this sense of loss. And that as participants became engaged in outdoor activities, this really serves as, served as an anecdote to, that, to those feelings and um, really planted the seed for long-term positive change um, and will put people on a trajectory likely to continue participating in the outdoors. So really digging into the data and better understanding who the new participant is, it was another key piece, as I mentioned, of this research. And the key takeaway here is that what we're seeing is that new participants are more diverse than ever. And this is really, really exciting, as I talked about how this data can, um, to co- it can contribute to the movement. And so specifically, what does that mean? That means that, um, New participants are more likely to be female, actually 58% more likely that um, versus 49% of of outdoor participants are female. Um, They're younger. The average age of our new participant is 45 years old. And in 2019, from 2019 data, the average age was 54 years old. Again, slightly more ethnically diverse. 60%, 66% of new participants were white versus 71% that were white in 2019. This is another interesting um, data point, too. Most of the new participants, well, there was a significant increase in the number of new participants living in urban areas. So 36% versus 29% in 2019. We're also seeing that folks are um, participating in outdoor activities who typically have um, lower incomes than we've seen in the past. So 41% of new participants have an income of over $100,000 a year, whereas in 2019 that was actually five percentage points higher. Um, So in addition to the mental and emotional benefits that I talked about, other reasons for uh, participating in the outdoors that were expressed were getting exercise, getting out of the house, staying healthy. Uh, one quarter of new participants, you can see, they picked up running and joggling and bicycling, again, those low barrier um, entry activities. One flag, though, is that one quarter of respondents did say that they will not continue participating in outdoor activities once COVID restrictions lift. This is a flag. The other flag here, which was a barrier, I think, that we've actually seen trend in previous years, is the lack of information about where to go, how to participate. Um, and trying new activities there's a sort of sense of fear of sense of um, exclusivity or feeling like i'm gonna look like an idiot if i don't know where i'm going and what i'm doing and and that's very real and that's very real in the new participant as well so now that we know a little bit about who the new participant is and what folks are doing with their free time outside we were able to glean five key recommendations for how we can improve the retention of new participants and these are relatively straightforward based on the data that you just heard. So, how are we able to invest in green spaces in urban? This really, I guess, isn't <laughs> isn't as relevant for this for this crew. But I think there can be a tie-in in how, um, you know, the work that you all are doing on the mountain can potentially, there can be an on-ramp to urban communities and to those green spaces and and maybe pairing program. I don't know what specifically that would look like. And that actually also relates to the third point too, which I'll talk about in a second. The second is that because, and, and as you dig into this report, I don't have time to go into the, you know, the real specific data and the crosstabs on this call, but One thing that really surfaced is people are craving connection. I think we all know that anecdotally, this really was proven to be true quantitatively in the survey, that um, people feel a a huge loss in sense of, um, of human connection. So if there's a way to tie whatever outdoor activity it is that you're communicating about with social activities, that that could be a real opportunity to help ensure that we're able to retain new participants. Um, The second piece really is around building on the momentum of a new sort of more diverse participant base. And that is how can we leverage programs and build with intentionality specific programs that reach diverse communities? The fourth is encouraging folks to really think about how they can start small. Again, there's that sort of exclusivity frame. And and there's also, I think, within the movement that I'm talking about, there's a, a foot this redefining what it means to be in the outdoors. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, climbing a 14 or, 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 you know, doing a, I'm trying to think of what the best example would be for doing a double black diamond. Um, that's not necessarily, like, that's great, more power too, if you can do that, but really helping, encouraging people to identify in being an outdoor enthusiast could just mean going for a hike in the foothills at the base of the Sandia Mountains, which is what I'm looking at right now. Um, so really encouraging those strategies to start small and low barrier activities. And then also positioning through your marketing material and through you know, your communications and your conversations, um, really lifting up the social and emotional benefits and the transformative experience that one feels when they go outside. Um, and that this can be a real anecdote to the antidote to the, um, to the negative effects of the pandemic. Um, I think we all have our own sort of personal stories and experiences firsthand or have witnessed the benefits of the outdoors. And, and now it's an opportunity to, I think, evangelize that and to help new participants do the same.
2: Really appreciate Stephanie, you sharing that, that information.
1: You can check out the Outdoor Industry Association report, The New Outdoor Participant, COVID and Beyond at www.outdoorindustry.org and at www.saminfo.com huddle. Let's
2: move to our, our next bit of um, research that came in. Um, and this second bit of research comes by way of a social listening report that we worked on with a group called Metric Centric and Regina Connell, um, who's um, going to speak to it in a minute, Um, And this report analyzes the conversational data on digital media associated with skiing, snowboarding, and other winter activities. Um, But Regina Connell, founder of Collective Work, can you take us through a couple of the key findings from this?
4: Absolutely. So um, good morning, and good afternoon, everybody. Um, So just to pull the camera back a little bit from, um, you know, to understand really quickly what social listening is and what it isn't. um, It's actually kind of a different way of listening to the customer. It's, more um, kind of unprompted. Um, you're not. You're not going to be able to ask specific questions. I think that you know all you really get to do is to kind of listen in on all the digital different kind of little breadcrumbs that uh, consumers leave behind. You're not listening just to Twitter, you're not just listening to Facebook, but you're listening to the entire range of what's available on what they call the open web. Um, We're not listening to specific people per se, um, although there are a couple of examples here and there, um, but um, overall is just kind of at the aggregate level. So what was it that really people kind of ended up talking about when they talked about this? And just to pull the camera back one more step, um, you know, we, as Olivia said, we had done this report kind of from last year, from kind of Uh, I think October 2019 to October 2020, this is a continuation of that in some sense um, and covers up through basically the beginning of March. So it's actually pretty fresh data. Um, So overall, very much in keeping with what Stephanie was talking about, kind of people really had a good experience overall in, you know, kind of at the ski areas, ski resorts and things like that. You know, overall, lots of good feelings. Yes, of course, there was some whining, we might say about things like, you know, parking and about rentals and just, you know, questions about that, but that started to dissipate. Um, what of course, unsurprisingly, there was in the middle of the season was a lot more concern about kind of crowding and things like that. Um, overall, people liked the local experience that they were, that they were uh, enjoying. And, um, you know, there were a lot of positive reviews and things like that about the local ski areas. Um, A little more up and down for the big destination resorts, um, concerns about crowding, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you know, there was a little bit of concern there, but I don't think that probably is a huge surprise. Um, As Stephanie was saying, what I call the newbies and the novices um, were overall enthusiastic about it. um, And uh, that was that kind of bodes well for the future. We have some ideas about that. People took, of course, the COVID changes in stride. I mean, I think there was so much concern about that at the very beginning of the season. And I think that, that overall it's what restaurants and all those other stores and all those other places, you know, found out which that people are actually pretty adaptable and pretty resilient. Um, and so that, was, that actually voted really well. Most people on this um, Zoom are gonna be interested in kind of comments about intention to kind of purchase passes and things like that for this next season. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. I think people are increasingly more optimistic that with vaccines rolling out and things like that, that that's going to be a little bit bit more normal for the next year. But really, I think we're gonna have to listen through the summer to really kind of figure out kind of what the sentiment is around um, passes. I think the thing that was really interesting to us as we were reviewing the report is what was actually influential. And this really speaks to, again, what some of the things that Stephanie was saying about how the um, you know how there was an influx of newcomers. And last year, when we had been listening, all the action was on the forums. That was where it was all at. And you know, and then a little bit of kind of news. the big influencers were kind of ski industry influencers, et cetera, et cetera. This year, the most influential kind of media outlet, if you will, was travel and leisure, which really indicates to me that that's a much more general audience that's starting to look at this and not just necessarily kind of hardcore skiers looking at ski forums and things like that. So that was really, really interesting. Um, and overall, this you know, will inform positioning and marketing and communications and how you decide to kind of roll out your marketing campaigns. But also it should inform kind of what kinds of um, offerings to provide. Again, similar to what Stephanie was saying, there needs to be offerings for newbies and novices as well as the more experienced skiers. So what are the three things to do in terms of stop, start and continue? Stop believing that there's going to be an old normal, so much has changed. And this is your chance to really, really embrace that change and, and, and really kind of help your kind of guests and customers and enthusiasts and fans kind of really appreciate that too. Um, Start planning for more competition. It's going to be this next big ski season is going to be a lot more competitive in terms of, you know what's going to be possible they're going to, there's going to be more travel people are going to be able to fly longer distances maybe if they're interested in you know kind of different kinds of activities you know, including kind of beach as opposed to snow. I think all of that's going to be a lot more possible. So there's a lot of focus on what you can do during the summer to plan for that. Um, Nurture the newbies. Absolutely, you know, kind of create opportunities for them. Reach out to broader audiences. Be aware that your audience, your your audience of opportunity may not be in the traditional ski areas um, and the ski media outlets. So make sure that you start to reach out for them. And finally, people, when they come out of this, are going to be looking for peak experience tougher courses, kind of new kinds of amenities and experiences. And finally, I think operators just killed it overall in a positive way um, during this past season, because, you know, they communicated, you may have felt that you were over communicating, there is no such thing when in times of change and strife like this. Um, but, you know, you did such a great job. The whole point is keep it up. Do not take your foot off that pedal. I think that's the really great opportunity. So that's what we found from social listening.
1: Want to dive deeper into customer sentiment? The metric-centric report is available at www.saminfo.com slash huddle.
2: Before we move on, I, you know, one, as, as Regina was saying, one interesting thing when you get this report and look at it is, um, as she said, you know, prior to the pandemic, it was men mostly in the forums that was driving the conversation. And then um, mid-season, um, it became broader sources like travel and leisure um that they were getting the listening the loudest um, and the demographics evened out as well there's more women in the conversation and and the other thing we thought was interesting because you talk about a lot on the huddle the operators did they said there was no marketing it was just our marketing was messaging covid education every week every day and um, and that worked because there was chatter leading into the city of worry, complaints, blah, blah, blah. And then the chatter went down. So, you know, w- the way we looked at that when we were looking at it was, you know, you did such a good job at taking care of their worries through your education, what you're doing, that that brought the, that negative chatter right down. So something you think about as we're heading into the summer, you did a good job really preparing the, st- the people for the experience. And it was so much so that that negative went down and the positive went up, so.
1: We'll be coming right back for more after we thank our partner, Doppelmayr. As the quality, technology, and market leader in ropeway engineering, Doppelmayr Garavanta operates production plans as well as sales and service centers in 50 countries worldwide. To date, the group has built more than 15,000 installations for customers in 96 nations. Flexibility, know-how, and pioneering spirit make the group ideally equipped to meet all the challenges of traditional and new markets top comfort and safety to fine installations in summer and winter tourism regions. With Doppelmayr Garanta, customers get top quality in modern design, user-friendly solutions and optimum service from the initial idea to the completed project and beyond. Learn more at www.doppelmayr.com. All
3: right. So, um, trend number two, um, flexibility and that continued blurring of the lines between work um, working from home, returning to the office, a hybrid of the two, um, school, whether it's remote learning or staying in the classroom, or again, a hybrid between those two things and how that varies between junior school, high school, college, post-grad, and play. You know, will that continued flexibility in work and school time lead to continued strong midweek business? Remote learning um, or remote working continues to be a reality for many and has shifted so much about people's lives, not just in how they work, but also how and when they play. Um, MJ, how is this trend continuing and what can it mean for resorts?
5: Yeah, thanks, Claire. Um, Yeah, so I think there's really two parts to this, actually. And the first part is the influx of urbanites actually moving to mountain towns. And we've seen this, young professionals are discovering that they can work from home, and all of a sudden, the big cities feel very much like a pandemic-induced, claustrophobic place to be. So there's this desire to move to mountain towns in environments where they maybe always wanted to live, but could never do it because of work. So that's an interesting you know, realization that we're having around um, around the opportunity to work from home. And I think what that means is that we're seeing it with some of our destination marketing organization clients, and I'd be curious to see how some of you as resort operators are capitalizing on this. But this influx of new working professionals um, is definitely a way to bolster your community. It's, it's new people coming in with new Um, positions, potentially, and looking for a much more kind of local community than what they were used to in their cities. And I think as Stephanie spoke to, to some degree as well, it also hopefully means a real rise in diversity, as we're seeing people from, you know, various ethnic and, and socioeconomic backgrounds that are flocking to mountain towns. So I think that has its own opportunities, and hopefully that's something that you are all working on in your um, DEI plans as well. Um, and then the second component is really the remote working, as uh, as you talked about, Claire. So we've all seen this. The lines are blurring between home and office and getaway, and those lines are going to continue to really blur. So it gives us, you as resort operators, a really unique opportunity to kind of redefine how that vacation quote unquote might might look and how you cater for both of those you know work and and vacation at the same time um i read an article this morning in the new york times they were saying that you know at least one-fifth of the u.s workforce is definitely going to be fully remote post-pandemic um so i think some of the questions you're probably asking yourself is how do you pivot to offer accommodation that's targeted to those remote workers rather than your like traditional vacationers um, I saw that Club Med is adapting to this trend. They've set up this new, I think it's called Workation or some awful name like that, uh, which is kind of a hybrid that they're offering where you can you know, work remotely and have this fully catered kind of environment. We're seeing um, some resorts doing interesting things. I've got just an example here from Le Massif, which is just north of Quebec City, and they're offering a telebureau a, a you know, I don't know what the English word for that is remote work um, from a gondola, you can uh, rent a gondola for, you know, 60 minute increments and bring your laptop and work from a gondola. They (laughs) offer all kinds of different, you know, sort of unique ways to kind of cater to that, to that um, remote worker that's still looking to get up on the hill. And I wanna just stop for a second and ask uh, Steve Wright from Jay Peak in Vermont to just tell us a little bit from your perspective, Steve. I know that you had some long-term stay packages at the very outset of the pandemic and just share with us, you know, was this a success? Is it something that you feel you'll continue? And do you feel like you'll modify, you know any of your initial thoughts around that?
6: Yeah, uh, thanks, so much, Jamie. <laughs> Here at Jay, we're the um, you know, with the largest kind of operator of rooms in the, in the state of Vermont, one of the one of the biggest in New England, we have around 900 rooms, three hotels and a, and a bunch of different, um, you know, one to three bedroom condos that on any given winter are in various states of, of occupancy. And with the Canadian border closed on one end, um, travel restrictions in Vermont being more aggressive than just about anyone anywhere. On, on the U.S. end, and then the hockey business, which we really rely on to compress, you know, Thursday through Sunday occupancy. Uh, with with hockey being completely gone uh, because of group gathering guidelines in the state, we needed to do something to to fill uh, to fill those rooms. So we created these longer term stays. We started last summer where we packaged uh, golf season passes with uh, monthly rentals and. You know it was our IT director that came up with the uh, that came up with the idea you know the marketing department here really wanted to take credit for that one but it was uh, the IT folks figured it out um, and I thought it would be interesting you know' it'd be an interesting thing I thought we'd get some ink around it a little bit of PR and I thought we'd sell ten of these things and we sold you know over a million dollars worth of uh, inventory in in the summer which you know everybody all all of the operators on this call were concerned with cash flow and liquidity at that point i know i know that we were um so not to be able to compress those rooms is one thing but be able to get that money in the pipeline immediately was was uh was certainly another and, and so we we led into winter uh did the same exact thing we rented uh, you had to buy a four-month block we wouldn't let you do it on a monthly basis but we did a four Five month block with uh, with four season passes uh, packaged into, into that. I had a lot more confidence uh, in the winter based off of what it looked like in the summer. So I didn't uh, I didn't uh, mock our IT director anymore after that initial uh, summer foray, uh, and we we did another million bucks uh, in the winter. Um, and you know, obviously the ADRs are are way way down, but you know you've got people here on campus. Uh, that are here on a daily basis. So you're getting per caps out of those folks all along the way. And you know, one of the softer pieces that you the, the upside here, aside from obviously the hit to liquidity that, that you get, is you get to build that deeper relationship with the guest. You know, it's one thing to have these people here for a Friday night through a Sunday morning, but when they're here every day and they start to feel like they're part of a culture at the resort, they they feel like they're behind the curtain. Uh, and you get more data points against what they're, what they're doing at the resort, the things they like, the things that they don't like, that, that connection with the guest, you, you can't uh, um, overestimate how much that means. We turned, you know, of the, of the 200 or 225 families that we got uh, in these relocation vacation packages, um, somewhere around 4 or 5% of those folks turned into real estate buyers. Um, you know, 11, 12, 13 of these folks bought real estate inventory and we've got, you know, another half dozen in the pipeline. So you can create a very uh, strong connection in a very short amount of time and it, and it, uh, it begins to pay off immediately. And we suspect that we'll have those payoffs down the road, uh, because of that.
5: Is there anything that you're changing, Steve, from the lessons that you've learned, um, through this year with those packages?
6: Well, only the amount of inventory that we can realistically dedicate to it, right? When we bounce back next year, uh, the border theoretically opens up, and um, you know, hockey returns. We need we need to be able to dedicate some of that inventory back toward uh, the hockey business because it's a it's a very uh, very bottom line driven segment of our of our business. But we will take a portion of that inventory out and use that as long term rentals. Um, again, not just for the liquidity piece, but for the ability to, to build those relationships with guests in a completely different way than we ever have.
2: All right, so we're going to move on to um, our next trend, which is uh, plan ahead um, reservations. Um, plan ahead meaning reservations all online, online ordering, F and B rentals, retail capacity control. We did a huddle two weeks ago called the tech transition. You know, as we know, prior to the pandemic, the ski industry in general was a technology laggard, but um, that has changed uh, quite fast um, or is at least changing now faster than it has been before so as we learned on that huddle technology this winter enabled us to re- remain operational during a pandemic and whether it was managing capacity or um that using the tech in the learning centers rental B tech offered a much needed frictionless experience and the result was it provided a much better experience for our guests and reduced staffing in many cases that we heard And so and and the other thing we heard was many operators on that that huddle reported uh, jumps of 20 points in their NPS scores after switching to an online reservation uh, system. So um, and then the final sentiment that I'll share is that um, everybody we talked to says they're never going back to the old way. And instead, they're going to be leaning in more to tech to solve operational problems. You can
1: lean into the tech transition by scrolling back one episode in the PodSAM feed to episode 55 trend number
3: four. um, And this was a sort of the battle cry of hospitality that came out of COVID high touch, low touch, no touch. Um, Regina, you want to expand on that a little bit and share some insight from that world?
4: Absolutely. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, really similar to what happened in the ski industry, but the, um, you know, hospitality industry kind of also known as being laggards, um, absolutely kind of um, kind of picked up their game this you know in 2020 and, and they had to. And uh, you know, what's what's lucky though is that again, in the same way as it, you know, worked with kind of all the changes inspired by COVID and things like that. What was interesting, what it's interesting is that now, just not just in hospitality, but overall, 87% of consumers are fine with options that limit no touch. Um, or in-person services, which is really huge. And actually 71% in the hospitality world um, actually prefer contact, things like contactless check-ins. So, I mean, the, that, that is kind of changing the nature of the expectation around um, you know, what should happen, what can happen with respect to this kind of, um, kind of low touch, no touch world that we're starting to go into. Um, and so that's actually really, really good. The primary technologies that they have been kind of instituting are, yeah, cashless payments. okay, fine. That's pretty basic. But then um, definitely starting to look at contactless check-in, um definitely, a lot of things around messaging during the guest during the guest stay, which is really, really a game changer. And even, prior to the guest stay, kind of just making sure that all expectations on both ends are actually clearly set. Um, and finally, then, you know, the ability to also be able to kind of for hospitality, open rooms with a smart open room, you know, doors with smartphones and things like that, similar, you know, kind of lockers as well, all that kind of thing. So I mean that's absolutely part of it. And of course, you know, ordering on the F and B um, online for F and B. So how do you think about it? And, um, you know, the most important thing are um, for some kind of, for example, luxury hospitality brands. I mean, that was just not feasible to go entirely no touch, but, you know, for, especially if with older demographics and things like that, but number two, the other important thing to, to do is to make sure that your low touch is actually high touch. And uh, a lot of people focus on the tech themselves, but it's actually about how well you integrate it into streamline and streamline the underlying processes. So that's really a lot of the work that it takes to to make this stuff really work really, really well. I think the other thing to, to understand is that when you do start to offer a whole suite of kind of online technology kind of enabled services, you're not necessarily just you're not just competing necessarily with the um you know with other resorts other areas, even with hospitality, you're actually competing with DoorDash, you're competing with Amazon, you're competing with all those other apps that absolutely sweat the details and sweat the the processes and things like that. So that's a really, really key thing to remember as well. And um, it really takes a whole different kind of mindset to be able to kind of do this well and to integrate this well. Um, But the, you know, the benefits are actually really tremendous um, of thinking through that process because you're going to be able to actually streamline that process overall. Um, I think one of the key things to do is you start to really think about how to make this kind of low touch experience a lot more high touch and a lot more valuable for you, because obviously there's a huge data component to all of this, data collection component to all of this, is to make sure that you do have some people on staff kind of who are able to really manage the user experience design process. And so that just means being able to do it from end to end and really doing it from the perspective of your guest and not just the perspective of the operator. That's one of the things that we always see kind of really falling down. And that's really one of the um, the biggest opportunities there. Um, but on the other side of that is, reduce costs, but then also again, the richness of the data that allows the experience overall to be a lot richer and a lot more robust moving forward and a lot more kind of able to kind of keep your competitive edge moving forward. So we are excited about that trend.
3: Thanks Regina. All right, uh, trend number five, the convergence of uh, real and virtual Uh, and how the online presence allows organizations to not just augment the experience, but also enrich and maintain relationships. Uh, Over the past year, we've seen just an unbelievable acceleration in virtual experiences. We see travel bugs trapped at home, satisfying their road trip cravings through the internet, Um, health club classes happening in your living room, Uh, destination websites are now that critical first step Um, figuring out what's going to happen when you arrive. And, you know, we talked about that a lot in social listening. I mean, it just becomes the the go-to reflex. Um, We rely on screens to do just so much now. Um, MJ, maybe you can talk a little bit about how this sort of accelerated trend of virtual experiences and technology can be connected back to our operators.
5: Yeah, for sure. I'm not going to talk so much about the idea of utilizing um, technology in your marketing or any of those things. I think I think that's a very well established practice and the power of, of, you know, video and experiences to um, entice people to come to your resort. What I do want to talk about is what we saw in 2020 was this unprecedented kind of shutdown of live sports. And what that created is just such a rapid kind of innovation throughout the sports sector. And it led to, I think, really interesting things. I'm never popular when I talk about this kind of stuff with ski resort operators, because I talk about like video games and esports and stuff that I know many of you are not huge fans of, but I think it's important to just be aware um, of these trends and of what, what our guests are actually doing in their off time. And so, what we're seeing is this this growing convergence of virtual sports experiences and entertainments, and esports experiences. And so, uh, I'll talk about just two or three, like, quick examples. Um, we're seeing these at home amateur athletes people like you and i who are now able to compete against top level professionals in multiple kind of sports so one example is uh is swift swift i'm not good at pronouncing that so zwift is this online um cycling and running training platform many of you might be familiar with them i know all my staff are addicted to it this year they hosted their first ever virtual tour de france in july and so it allowed Uh, professionals like the the professional Tour de France cyclists and non-professionals to compete on the same course and kind of see how they actually measured up. This was a dream come true for so many cyclists, right? Who got to experience these types of things and and brag about it and see their results. And then on the right, um, the the, like sexy gadget that you can see there is what Adidas launched um, just about a year ago, which is their DRM smart insole. And that allows any amateur soccer athletes to put this little device in their uh, insole and they can record and merge all of their soccer training with the video game FIFA. And so you can see your kicks, your shot power, your distance, your speed measured in real life. And then you're able to translate their stats and see how you compare it to the pros and you know win digital rewards and, and all kinds of things like that. So. I'm not advocating that ski resort operators should start to develop video games. I'm not advocating that, you know, you should start to have VR experiences. I just think it's important to talk about the fact that there's a blurring of the lines between real life sports and and what's happening in the virtual world. And I think there's potentially a way for snow sports to capitalize on this trend or at least be aware of it.
3: Yeah, what's really great about it is, is, and when we first started this conversation, the trend we had identified was real versus virtual. And it's not, it's both. It's it's about augmenting the experience, not replacing it entirely. Like we had to replace a lot of things over the past year, but what we found is how that actually augments the connection and augments what it means to actually participate. Um, Regina, you had some interesting things about the sort of hospitality industry again, and sort of connecting those things.
4: Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And, you know, I'm pretty excited about things like augmented reality and mixed reality, which is which is what I think MJ was just talking about as well. And um, I think that's going to be really, really huge. There are a lot of technology companies that are coming out with, you know, kind of abilities. To, they're starting to move in that direction. And if you think that it's all about like the huge kind of, you know, VR headset thing. Um, there's a company called Snap, which is, you know, kind of vaguely a social media company that um, has got a really good looking pair of sunglasses that actually look halfway normal. I mean, still, obviously they're doing something, um, but it's actually pretty exciting to be kind of able to see those technologies start to kind of come to a place where it's, it really feels that you can actually integrate it with what it is that you're doing. Um, and so one of the other things that that is actually interesting though, is to actually, augment not necessarily from a technology perspective what you're already doing um, through something like a through something like classes so let me just give you an example we have a couple of spa clients that have obviously suffered um, pretty massively this last year but what they've been able to offer kind of cooking classes for um, for a lot of their uh, a lot of their guests and things like that. And these are not cooking classes that are about 50, you know, 50 bucks or 20 bucks a head. This is more like 200 and 300 and 400 cooking classes. And they've been able to use that to not just build kind of stronger bonds with their guests who with the regulars who can't get there, but actually what it's done is it's allowed them to reach out to a broader demographic, a younger demographic. Um, to be able to kind of raise awareness of kind of how special this place is. And so it's not just a form of marketing, um, but it's actually a new form of revenue. And what they're planning on doing this company is to be able to kind of roll out more and more experiences through the digital channel Nothing, of course, is gonna replace kind of going there in real life, but but it's all about continuing to actually take what the brand is, what the lifestyle is, and really start to kind of offer that to fans and to create a new fan base out of that. So that's a whole new level of product development, but, um, and just leveraging the, the you know, the digital channel, but it's actually something that, that uh, a lot of um, kind of more lifestyle oriented brands and hospitality and beyond are very interested in
3: such a bottomless conversation this one that i think is really intriguing like you could just go to like think about ski school and you know what kind of fitness classes can you do with your with people that come to take lessons and things like that like it's just endless ability to augment rather than thinking about it as replacement Uh, okay our final trend is um Really, this is something that is just becoming so loud in the conversation around business these days. And that's the notion of of a deeper connection um, with your customers, with your team, with your community, with the planet uh, and finding really really great value in that deeper intention. Um, Related to this, uh, one of the components of connection that, that we've really seen amplified over the course of the pandemic is Um, related to trust. And we've seen, as we've seen over the past year, consumer trust evolves and changes within the larger context of what's going on in the world. Um, MJ, talk a little bit about what you're seeing when it comes to the sort of current trends related to trust and, and forging deeper connections around that.
5: There's a report that's published every year that I love, and it's called the Elderman Trust Barometer. And essentially, they just do a, a global survey of consumer trust. And what they found this year, actually 2021, is declared the year of information bankruptcy. And I'm not going to go into like the crisis in American leadership and all kinds of reasons why there's been this you know change in trust. But I will say that the survey this year shows a major decrease in consumer trust in things like Media, social media, search engines—all of these things that still had historically some consumer trust have all gone gone like way down. And what we're actually seeing as the, the the number one trustworthy source is businesses, and that's a really big shift from from what consumers have said in the past. And it's obviously. A really important um, component for for you to be aware of. The other component that's really interesting this year is the fact that, that trust is local, and employers are a mainstay of trust. and And consumers are saying, I trust my employer more than social media, more than honestly any other source. And so I think that's just a really important change, and something for for all of you as employers to be aware of. And so you know, in terms of what it means, I think there's some obvious things all of you have started doing. All kinds of things in, in kind of crisis management, whether it's like weekly Zooms with your teams or or you know, um, mental health discussions, whatever it might be. I think it's important to think about what you're going to be doing and how you'll adapt post-pandemic uh, with some of these tools that you've created to, to maintain or create trust with your, your employees and your staff. Something that um, JP did earlier in the year that to me really is an example of, of building trust. It was an email that was sent to um, the Canadian database. I'm a a Canadian, I received the the email and it was essentially just a a email from, from Steve at Jay kind of telling us, hey, it sucks not having you guys here. Um, we hope things will get better. And we're thinking of you, you know, paraphrasing here, Steve, but the cool thing was there was no like, buy now and click here. There's no promotion. There's no call to action. It was just letting us know that, you know, we're missed at the resort. So Steve, I want to just ask you this notion of trust and and sort of what you've done, you know, to, to keep trust with your employees, your pass holders, and, um, and what you plan to do, you know, post pandemic.
6: Yeah. I mean, like you said, MJ, for, for us, and I think for everybody on the call here, it really starts with the way that we treat our staff and our employees. Um, you know, and the belief that until until the the employees feel served uh, by by the business, by the resort, then they're not going to feel comfortable serving each other, which is critical, right? All, all of the staff serving and supporting each other. If ever there was a season for that, this is it. And then in turn, being able to serve the guests. Like there's a there's like harmony there that has to happen in order for that equation uh, to, to really work. And when you talk about, you know, strategies and tactics around trustworthiness, you know, it sounds a little dirty, right? It's, uh, you know, it sounds like there's a means to an end. Anytime you talk about strategy and tactics towards anything, um, there's this this belief that you're doing this thing in order to get a result. And, and in reality, you, you build you know, trust with your, your guests by being trustworthy. You know, it's as, it sounds trite, but it's as, it's as simple as that. I mean, um, you know, with, and when we, the, the piece that you showed there was, that was just a byproduct of us, you know, sitting around a director's meeting one day saying, Jesus, it's weird to not have people speaking French in lift lines. It's weird to not see all of the Canadian guests that are here and we all just sort of said, well, why the hell are we just telling each other this? You know, we should tell the Canadians um, that we miss them. You know, it wasn't we didn't sit around and, and say, well, this is going to probably increase our t- trust quotient by 15 percent. It was just something that, you know, that uh, that we ended up doing and I, you know, it's it's something, you know, and believe me, the irony's not lost on me that a resort that was shut down by the SEC for being untrustworthy is mm-hmm. is uh, pounding the table. On a conversation about trust, it's not—it's not lost on me. Uh, But honestly, we—we had more to do in that realm than anybody because we had to rebuild it. Uh, So maybe we put a value on that that's that's even uh, that's even a little bit more, a little bit different than than other folks. And I would, you know, the only other thing I would say is, you know, for me, for this whole season, really, it wasn't what people were saying as it related to um, trust and relationship building. It's who was saying it, right? We, there were GMs that were talking about, um, you know, their values. There were, there were COOs that were talking about supporting things like BLM and, and stopping Asian hate, and workplace equity, things like that. Um, and then you, and you had presidents talking about safety. You know, these are all non-transactional communications. It's not the, the resorts aren't reaching into your wallet when they do that through, through these videos and through these uh, email communications. And there's more power in that. Uh, than than people understand, I think, you know, I mean, look at how we react when a brand reaches out to us to either ask a question or something that doesn't feel like they're trying to get us to incent purchase. I mean, those are the relationships, at least for me, that end up being the strongest. And I think in turn, you're going to see the industry do a lot more of that. And I think that this industry has to because there are a few players that are having primarily transactional based pricing conversations in order to grow volume. Uh, and to the extent that, that the bigger players are moving to the right, it opens up opportunity for these smaller and medium sized resorts to go left and to continue to have conversations that, that build relationships, that you refine your experiences with them and maybe charge what you're worth um, and so that you have a different option out there for the skiing and snowboarding public to choose from that's not just predicated on pricing.
3: Thanks, Steve. You know, it's remember early last, last year when we were getting into this and, and this notion of social distancing came up and Dave, I remember you pointing out on a huddle, it's like, it's not social distancing, it's physical distancing. The social part, we need to get tighter and, you know, we have, like if, if you can point to the biggest silver lining of this pandemic as we all were apart, we found we have all found ways to be closer together. Um, and that's, you know, exactly what this trend is at its essence is really talking about. And, you know, related to that topic of, of forging and maintaining deeper connections, um, MJ, maybe to speak a little bit about how the importance of brand purpose and and sharing your values evolved with COVID and, and you know, how that's starting to emerge within this larger context of deeper connection.
5: One of the things I did want to highlight, Nick, is the fact, as Steve just said, with the COVID crisis the Black Lives Matter and, and everything that else that has happened this year, there's a real collective social responsibility that's been pushed to the top of the agenda. And so consumers more than ever expect the brands that they spend money with to take a stand for their values um, and to, and to be there, to actually show up and take a stand. There's a website that just popped up and it's a, it's a group of people that have just come together. And the website is called didtheyhelp.com. And it's essentially just showcasing, you can Google, you can, sorry, you can search any company and it'll show you, did they help? What are they doing for COVID, for Black Lives Matters, for, you know, all of these other social issues. Um, so, whether or not you want this on display, it is on display. People are looking and, and searching for what you're doing as a brand. Uh, and then I wanna stop talking and really pass it to uh, Dave Norton, who's the, the CEO of Taos in New Mexico. Um, Taos was the first uh, B Corp ski resort. They have really pushed uh, the notion of brand purpose and the notion of using business as a force of good. So David, can you tell us a bit, you know, your your approach to that and if it resonates with your guests and finally, you know, any advice for resorts that are just starting on this uh, journey?
7: Yeah, sure, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I guess when you think of post-pandemic, the one of the things we get most excited about is being able to return to our environmental and social responsibility work. And that was kind of put on the back burner just to deal with how to operate a, a resort. So, but, but having that uh, opportunity ahead of us is very exciting. Uh, we became the first, Ski resort certified as a B Corporation in, in 2017. Uh, we started, we, we identified this opportunity when we were doing work with the Nature Conservancy in New Mexico. Uh, there's a big concern about wildfire across the West. And we partnered on a program called the Rio Grande Water Fund to improve the health of the forest of 600,000 acres of land. And forest areas of northern New Mexico and southern Colorado. And we quickly realized that working with the Forest Service, the Nature Conservancy, small local um, logging operations, this is the true public-private, nonprofit opportunity. And it, it's actually how a B Corporation functions using business as a force for good. Uh, B corporations are those organizations assessed on their environmental and social responsibility and the the big names out there are Patagonia, Ben and Jerry's, New Belgian Brewing, Danone is a big multinational, uh, Dr. Bronner's, and we are the, uh, the first ski resorts for the a B of B Corporation. We didn't really know exactly what we were getting ourselves into, but now it impacts almost every decision that we make the certification, the importance of social and environmental responsibility, the importance of the community. Um, it has greatly in, in, improved our recruiting efforts because millennials want to work for organizations with a strong purpose and aligned values. Uh, the response from our guests has been extraordinary. Our, our, uh, um, I, I would say one of the reasons is guests today and consumers today are looking for companies to take a stand. They don't want you to be in the middle of the road. They want you to take a stand and say who you are, what you're doing. Um, our visitation levels and revenues have been up greatly over the last two or three years. I think part of that is due to some of the revitalization work that we're doing. But I think part of that work is due to uh, the purpose that we've, we've created. Uh, I think one of the strongest attributes to having a purpose-driven organization is really the aligned values of your staff. And this year we went into the season. I think we saw it the season. We went into the season with the goal to open, to stay open and to, you know, we talked about the best-in-class COVID operations to be. And that is the highest level of social responsibility, if you think about it. During a pandemic, how are you going to keep your staff safe and healthy and how are you going to keep your community safe and healthy? Uh, we became New Mexico Safe Certified, which is something that the state put into place. And we had all of our staff take a TAUS pledge. And just a couple of days ago, oh, we also were required to get tested. So every day our staff would get screened. And once a week, we would test a very large portion of our operation. And just a couple of days ago, we got the last test results, over 2,000 staff tested throughout the season, and we have a zero positivity rate. It was remarkable. And we think that that was done part luck, part planning, but mostly a commitment of the staff the overall cause. And we know that every business that has a COVID case, it's brought from home and brought to the work, but the staff was committed. And I think that's where the aligned values and the uh, aligned purpose comes into play. So um, we've been very pleased with where we are on this. Uh, MJ, you asked, where do you start? I think you just, uh, you know, vision is what are you gonna do going forward? Values are, are how are you gonna do that? And purpose is why? And, and, after, it was funny, after we became a B corporation, we wanted to get more into purpose. We know that purpose-driven organizations outperform the competitive set over and over again. And we simply asked our staff, why are we here? Why do we drive to work every day? Why do we do the things that we do? And, and I, I'm a strong believer in purpose. And I think that's a, that's a very simple way to start, get in the room and, and ask why. And uh, you know, for us, it's to enjoy. To protect and to give you know to enjoy the outdoors for ourselves and our guests to protect our local environment and the planet and to give back to uh our our staff really and our community great
2: thank you so much david um but i thought it'd be fun to just do a quick uh round of final thoughts um so um if you guys could each leave us a a little a little morsel to take away and um, let's start with um, Regina.
4: Yeah I mean unsurprisingly I'm going to say listen to your customers and walk in their shoes as much as possible and um, you know and just also keep in mind that your quote customers are kind of maybe a lot broader than they used to be and it's just such a huge opportunity so uh, just keep listening.
2: Cool. Uh, Claire?
3: As most of you know I'm a planner so I'm going to talk about planning, and I think at the end of your season, you know, take a minute to regroup with your team and reflect on your lessons learned. Um, be proactive in your thinking, and think about you know what you can incorporate out of your out of your COVID moves into your operating and upgrading plans. Um, and think about you know not just there's, there's two different things here, right. That are, are very uh, symbiotic. One is you're improving your operations, streamlining your operations, but also improving your guest's experience, um, and work your process. You know, we planners, we love a good process.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, MJ,
5: they know what you stand for as a business and actually stand up for it.
2: Great. And Stephanie.
0: I don't know how you top that. Thanks, MJ, for leaving <laughs> me <laughs> yeah. No, I would echo what, what's already been said. I think, um, yeah, recognizing that your customer base is likely much more diverse mm-hmm. now and, and I think it's a wonderful, beautiful thing and how can we build on that?
1: You and your customers have both changed as a result of the past year. As the season ends, it's time to step back, regroup, and review before we kick off the next season but summer is right around the corner. Join our next Huddle conversation on Summer Operations, April 12th. Learn more and register at www.saminfo.com huddle. Thank you to our partner, Doppelmeyer, for their support of this conversation. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The PodSAM advisor is Alex Kaufman, the Wintry Mix podcast guy. I am Sarah Bordeev, and thank you for listening to PodSAM.